Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own. To always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com. where we talk about the journeys of life. I am Dennis Sanders, and I am your host. Have you subscribed to the show yet? If you haven't, consider subscribing now. You can subscribe to the show on various podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or um, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or you can do it via RSS. And when you do that, you will never miss a show. And don't just listen to the show. Why don't you leave a review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast or a rating by that way. When you do that, you make it a lot easier for other people to help to find this show. And by the way, did you know that Enroot has a YouTube channel? If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, and there are people that do, check out the link in the show notes and subscribe. Well, earlier this year, there was a primary held in the suburbs of Dallas-Fort Worth, and it was to fill the seat of a deceased representative to Congress. There were a number of Republicans that decided to stand for the election in the primary, and one of them was Michael Wood. He was a veteran and um, defined really as an old-style Reagan conservative. He pretty much openly rejected uh, the politics of Donald Trump. He was endorsed by Trump critic um, Adam Kinzinger. Wood ended up losing um, to a Trump-endorsed candidate. In fact, he finished far behind with just 3.2% of the vote. Wood's loss was an example that the conservatism that so many of us, whether we are conservatives or not, are used to is no longer in fashion. What has become in vogue is the bombast of Donald Trump, who has used jingoism, racism, and nationalism to win the White House and also as his governing, if you can call it a governing strategy while he was in the White House. He has basically reshaped the GOP into a party that seems more interested now in owning the libs than it is in lowering taxes. So what is conservatism and what is the Republican Party? Because in the years since Donald Trump has descended down that golden escalator to begin his presidential campaign, American conservatism 
has suffered an identity crisis. Ronald Reagan was well-read. He understood conservatism, and he was able to distill all of the, the heady theories and talks into words that the common person could understand. He made it made conservatism accessible. And this is a far cry from the current leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, who boasts of not ever really reading anything and really can't define conservatism unless it includes him. Today, I'm talking with Josh Lewis, who is the host of the podcast Saving Elephants. And Saving Elephants is, describes itself as reigniting conservatism for millennials. While the topics of discussion on the podcast are wide-ranging, Josh keeps coming back to the source, trying to bring the concepts of conservative luminaries such as Edmund Burke, Russell Kirk, and Michael Oakeshott to speak to these strange times that, in the, that we find ourselves in, in the early 21st century, but also, and more importantly, to his own generation, which sometimes seems these days to be more interested in the benefits of socialism than in the free market. I had a great conversation with Josh as we talked about the current state of the, of the conservative movement, the difference between conservatism and conservative ink, the shortcomings of the Never Trump movement, and his own road towards becoming not just a conservative, but a conservative that truly understands the intellectual foundations of that movement. And I have to say, I enjoyed, what I really enjoyed was talking about how our respective generations of Generation X, uh, my generation, and the millennials really can add to the political discussion, I think really can add to political leadership. And also how both generations are really waiting and we have waited for a long time for the boomers to give up their hold on the leadership of both political parties. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here's Josh Lewis. Okay, well, Josh, thank you for uh, joining me today. Dennis, it's good to be here. Well, I think the first thing um, wanting to start off with, um, and it's something that we both have um, kind of a stake in, is where do you think the conservative movement today has gone off the rails? And, and maybe the better question is why? Well, what has caused things to be at the state they are now? That is a big question, obviously. And, and the first part of that, where have they gone off the rails while we, uh, I don't know how well served we would be with me just trying to offer some opinions as to the airing of grievances, the many problems I have, say, with the conservative movement. Um, that can be fun, uh, but, but I don't know that that gets us very far. 
why is a more interesting question and a more difficult question. And it, you know, this is not the sum total of the answer. I think I would take most of my cues from sort of the evolve event approach of the idea of between the performative or formative institutions. And that there does seem to be, um, you can call it partially due to social media, partially due to failure of government, uh, partially due to, I, I don't necessarily share his vision, but Patrick Deneen's explanation of how liberalism allows for a continuous breaking down of civil society and we keep atomizing. We do seem to be witnessing an era in which our institutions are serving as platforms to just display ourselves. And a conservative environment or a conservative ethos does not thrive in that, where we are all um, expressing ourselves instead of forming ourselves toward the uh, character of those who we recognize we want to be. And, And that's maybe the base of my answer. Obviously, we could go a thousand different directions from there. But I think that's maybe the closest to what I can identify as the root of what may be pushing some of this um, disintegration of the conservative movement. And it seems like with, uh, and I would agree with you, um, with the Obalovin's thesis, um, it seems that that kind of performative conservatism seems to be less intellectual. And, And when I mean intellectual, I don't necessarily mean that everyone has been reading Burke all the time, but I, I, I think it, it's just not the type that is reflective or, or thoughtful of how to, you know, bring these principles and to kind of put them into practice um, in everyday life, especially in the 21st century. You know, Jonah Goldberg makes this point that it is very, it's, it's a very bad move for the right to try to compete with the left in terms of a reactionary emotive type um, arguments. Um, because honestly, conservatism has always been about tempering expectations, about yes. uh, being, you know, considering your actions. And yes, we can agree that this is unjust, but how do we actually go about, you know, it's, it can be difficult to alleviate these problems. How do we act like mature? That requires humility. That requires patience. That requires arguments that appeal to the intellect and to the heart. And when instead you circumvent that process with just sort of an emotive reaction, um, we're kind of going to be on the losing end of that bargain. Well, because I think also the left does that a lot better than we do. They do it much better. So why do you think that we have decided that's the route to take to to become more emotive, to become more performative? Um, I mean, it seems to be paying off, at least in um, at least in the short run, um, whether yes. it, it is in the long run, that's, that is to be determined. No, I, I completely agree. And, and I, I, my suspicions is it does not pay off in the long run. Um, you know, if I could borrow from, say, social media, we know that anger is an incredibly powerful motivator. But it is, unfortunately, a very unhealthy motivator, and it's a very exhausting motivator. So you can get a lot done, and, and this is, and, and I think when you live in a moment with sort of a flight 93 mindset, say, and I'm speaking just to the right, you know, the, the left have their own kind of uh, way of looking at things. But when you speak to individuals who kind of buy into this mindset, they have a certain fatalism to them, sort of a, this is our latched, last ditched effort. And, you know, and I, and I want to look at them in the best light possible, offer them as much good faith as I can. If that is, in fact, your mindset, that it's literally storming the cockpit, this is our last chance, I can kind of understand that fatalism as sort of a, um, you, you throw the rule book out the window and you do whatever you can. Um, weirdly, conversely, it can kind of be fun 
you know, it, it, it can be sort of enjoyable to watch your opponent squirm, if you will. It's just, it's, you're, you're eating your sugar instead of your, um, your, your uh, broccoli, if you will, right up front. And, and so there's sort of a, I think it's a combination of a lack of maturity and patience, but also sort of this belief, which I think is very, very wrong, but is very prevalent, um, that America's over. We've got one more shot at this, and, and if we get this one wrong, um, it's just done. We have no other. Cho- we have no other choice. And it seems that that's can and, and that kind of thinking can lead to some bad outcomes, um, such as January six. Yes. <laughs> well, honestly, such as the last four years. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> and, and it's and, and this is not necessarily chiefly a criticism of the right. Let me be clear here. Um, and this is another thing I pick up from Evola Van. We have effectively two parties that are no longer future oriented, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that in effect, a good government needs to be thinking about a long term 5, 10, 50 year strategy. Uh, what threats or what concerns do we have in our future and how do we appropriately mitigate against those? How do we prepare for them? And instead, we have a very in the moment mindset. And that's, that's dangerous for any party. Well, um, I'm trying to remember that the, there is, um, I don't know, it, it seems like, especially in the, um, what has happened recently with Afghanistan, I think it was Matt Lewis that has said that um, both parties seem to these days don't like our country. Um, the left tends to think it's incredibly racist and irredeemable. Um, the, the right tends to think it's incredibly decadent um, and are now longing for Eastern European dictators. Um, why do you think that we are looking that way? That, that they're just, you know, that we're not even, not just not future oriented, that we just don't seem to even like our country as it, as it is right now. Yeah, and, and here, and Dennis, I'm afraid sometimes the best I can do is just repeat things I've heard or learned from my betters say. Um, but there, there's sort of a David French idea of the divided we fall, mm-hmm. that almost everything in American life is pulling our cultures apart. Um, and, and it's not as simple as this, but if we just think of it in terms of red state, blue state, whether it's religion, whether it's the way we live our lives, whether it's the occupations we occupy, the way we, um, the way we vote, obviously, um, everything seems to be and has been for some time pulling us apart. I think this is obviously a problem. I think sometimes we can kind of overemphasize how much of a problem it is in the current moment because there were prior generations, say World War II, post-Great Depression, where everything was pulling the country together. But that didn't necessarily mean it was coming together for good causes or reasons. Certainly, there's a lot of good out of it. We recognize today, you know, through uh, civil rights and stuff, there, there was an awful lot of Mm-hmm. harmful bigotry taking place in that era that was pretty much completely accepted by the United States at large. So it, to me, in, in my mind, there's, there's never going to be a perfect solution here. I think what we're trying to, it's, and maybe, maybe this is part of my conservative bias. I'm always amazed that society works at all. I'm naturally pessimistic about most things. Um, and the fact that we have somehow managed to make it this long with 330 some odd million Americans uh, under an experiment of ordered liberty this has never happened in human history. And I, I think we all deserve a pat on the back for we've at least made it this far. Um, and, and I'm not trying to be fatalistic in that sense, but I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I think you can have a scenario in which there's at least, there's too much unity uh, in a bad direction, too much disunity. 
and trying to figure out how to stay within that for whatever, you know, cause whatever forces are out there have been pulling our country apart for some time, will probably continues for some time. Um, that can go back the other way. But while we're in this current moment, I think that's the question. And this is sort of the David French model. Well, how do we uh, reinvigorate a, a sense of the mind and the heart of federalism? How do we um, allow for a discomfort with how other people are living while still maintaining this overall uh, structure of order, order liberty we have? And I realize I'm, I'm maybe getting a little far afield from your question here, but I, but I guess I'm saying it's, I don't know if I know the full sum total of what all is pulling us apart. I know sometimes people point to things like, well, there's the Cold War is over. Um, we, you know, it's kind of, America has always been so future oriented. I, I, I don't think it's as simple as this, but it's almost like, where do you go once you beat everybody? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not that we don't have enemies out there. We certainly do, but we're not facing Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia. We're not facing someone that can truly represent an existential threat to our way of life. And, and in some sense we've won, but it feels like such a hollow victory. Hmm. Well, similar to this, and and one of the things that I'm wondering is, does this have anything to do with our increasing diversity as a culture? Um, You know, if you go back 50, 60 years ago, I mean, we were diverse then, but but I think that the pace of, of, of diversity has quickened since the 60s. and that there is just so much change. You know, how does conservatism kind of deal with that, especially a movement that in some ways, I won't say is against change because that's not the case. Right. But I think that the, the question is how it, how does it stick to first principles in a new day? And it seems like right now we don't want to, that there are people within the movement that don't want to do that. But it seems like that has to be where we have to go. Yeah, and and I think any reading of conservative intellectual tradition would a person will immediately pick up on the idea that conservatives have always argued about this. Um, that being said, I also want to be a little careful to distinguish between I don't want to say intellectual necessarily, but but a, a more robust, honorable form of a of that argument mm-hmm. versus the broader conservatism inc which incorporates a lot of bad actors that are primarily reactionary, longing for a fictitious version of the past that never existed. But not only could we not call back, but it, it literally was never there in the first place. Um, you made kind of two points, and your first one's a very, very good one, and it, uh, that didn't necessarily occur to me, but you're right. I think the increasing diversification of the United States is, in fact, playing into some of this, by which I not, don't necessarily mean ethnic diversity. Of course, that has something to do with it. But we are entering a new era more and more where we're having, you know, we, we start off, it's easy to be okay with diversity when you're 90% Caucasian and you all agree on the same Judeo-Christian, you know, underpinning. It's just different, different varieties of the Christian faith, in effect. Mm-hmm. It's very different. We, we've, we've reached the point where we're, we're even past the, well, we all believe in um, maybe the Christian God, even though we're not, you know, disagreeing on what that is. Now we're, we're questioning even that. What is the higher power? Does it even exist? And, and this isn't true diversity in the sense that, you know, from sea to shining, shining sea, you have equal proportions of this. What we're seeing, unfortunately, is very, very religious areas of the country and ever-increasing secular areas of the country. And I'm not, that's not impossible, but it's more challenging, obviously. It, it prevents, it, it makes it harder to kind of come together in some sort of unity. 
Um, but in terms of the second part of your question, what do we do? Conservatism has always been about applying the brakes. It's not been about stopping. I, I love William F. Buckley's quote that the conservatives are the man who stands athwart history yelling stop. That's true so far as it goes, and I don't think Buckley meant it this far. It's not true in the sense that we're trying to either turn the clock back or just prevent any progress whatsoever. But it's rather a recognition that change is necessary. In fact, Edmund Burke even said it's necessary that preservation of the state is dependent on change. Um, but it has to be channeled and filtered in such a way so that it's not destructive. And mm-hmm. it's an imperfect analogy, but I think of it as sort of a raging river that, yeah, it's going to destroy the farmland of the town. Um, but you don't just dam up the river, you, you, you channel its flow. And you and I, unfortunately, cannot fully predict what the outcome of that will be. There's going to be some negative, some positive to it. But we do get to play a role in trying to prevent the damage that just an unfettered river running its course would play. Does that mean that you think that there are a lot of people that don't see themselves as actors, that they don't see themselves as having agency these days, that it's kind of, this is going to happen, so we've got to, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I certainly think you see this sort of a, a bizarre sense of this in Donald Trump, and I would even, and, and this, this can upset some people, but I would even say like of prior leaders like Barack Obama, um, of sort of a cult of personality of here is the Here's the collectivists we have to rally around, and we vest all hope in them. Now, I, I, I hesitate. I'm not trying to equate. Obviously, Obama and Trump are very different people, um, and I don't think Obama had the same. Um, he had a, a working definition of the limitations of the United States government, even if at times I think he uh, circumvented them, um, whereas I don't think Donald Trump ever had that appreciation. Um, but that being said, I think not so much these individuals, but the cult of personality that can revolve around them. Um. I think, in a sense, is, is an individual who feels that they don't have agency, that they are atomized from the country. And that's a scary place to be. Uh, we've kind of lost that Burkean, Tocquevillian, um, we are vibrant, healthy communities, can-do attitude of the United States. Uh, and, 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 and we're instead turning to this sort of collectivist model, which is, and maybe that's natural for any country over 300 million. You know, it was some question, could we even do this? You know, you can do it in a city state. Can you actually give order to liberty to millions of people and hundreds of millions? <laughs> um, and, and obviously the answer is yes, but it's challenging. And I think those individuals are understandably feeling that that terror, if you will, um, of what appears to be things unraveling. And yet here is an individual who I perceive I can put faith in to fix this thing that I, that I have a hard time even defining. Because it's probably easier to put faith in one person than it is to try to figure out how do you bring ordered liberty to 330 million people, which is, I think, a hard thing to figure out because it's a different beast than, say, you know, America in 1950. um, Well, the... I'm a John Adams... uh, I'm a believer in John Adams' ideas about the founding in the sense that it's that you can't have public virtues without private virtues. Mm-hmm. And you can't have ordered liberty without public virtues. And and, and I, I, you know, pr- presumably us both expressing a Christian faith, we're never going to get to a true utopia on earth where we're past our mm-hmm. sin natures. And yet I think that there can be a reasonable expectation that we can cultivate, that we can expect a culture. Um, that we can expect formative institutions that do attempt to cultivate 
the sort of virtues that are necessary for a free society. And we don't talk that way much anymore. It's almost offensive uh, that we would suggest individuals need to mind their moral compass in order for us to have a um, a, a functioning nation. Mm-hmm. Understandably, sometimes not only is it offensive, but unfortunately, sometimes the loudest voices to say that have a rather authoritarian approach to how we get there. And, and I'm, my concern is that taking your hands off the wheel of a moral compass and then trying to force it down people's throats, both of those are not conducive to order liberty. Would you also say that, because I think one of the things that I feel I'm seeing a lot in both parties is a, a sense is is really a sense of utopianism uh, of a belief that there is some perfect state either in the past or the future usually in the past but mm-hmm. that that we want to try to get to that utopia which doesn't exist but we want it yeah it Irving Kristol had the observation that utopias can be helpful as a form of I guess what you would call political philosophy in the sense that defining what the perfect is at least might help us come up with some sort of a um, measuring stick, say, for where are we. Um, now, they're completely unhelpful if we confuse the measuring stick for um, reality mm-hmm. um, or, or for even our capabilities. And, and I think that's a very this, – this is an area I think it used to just exclusively be a progressives, I would say, but more and more of the right – that it's challenging to try to express that we can't actually reach some of these goals because that sounds like you're acquiescing to what a lot of individuals rightly find as evil. Um, uh, you know, case in point on the left, there's, there's a lot of instances of bigotry in this country that I unfortunately don't know that we're ever going to eradicate. It does not mean we can't make improvements. Uh, it does not mean we can't call things out. But when you identify something that is that justice, say, an injustice that's been um, perpetrated at a, not on an individual, but say a group level, um, that maybe we can all agree, yes, this is unjust. I think the search for justice through state means can unfortunately cause even more injustice in the process. Mm-hmm. Indeed. I, I would agree with you on that, especially in some of what we have, unfortunately, been calling woke. It doesn't always mm-hmm. work. Yeah. Um, moving on to kind of looking at the Republican Party itself, um, I know that you have a, a background um, in, from your college days, and, and um, I know with the Oklahoma GOP. Looking at the party as it is right now, can it be reformed? I think there are a lot, there are some people, especially in the aftermath of, of, Trump and especially after January 6th say that it can't, um, mm-hmm. that either it's time for a new party or we all need to move over to the Democrats. So is there a way forward and, and how does that happen? These are all good questions that, that I hope the listener at this point has learned that I, I am not going to be able to give satisfactory answers to. Um, Yes, the GOP can be reformed, but I think two things are necessary. One is we probably need to temper our expectations with what exactly that means. And second, maybe most importantly, we need to very carefully consider what sort of a timetable we're talking about. Um, Any act of reformation in a political party is completely possible within a given enough time. I do not think, and I'm just going to be blunt, I don't think the next four or eight years we're going to see 
things that those who would be collectively or loosely associated with, say, the Never Trump movement are going to find satisfactory about the Republican Party. Um, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I just I um, and and if we were sitting here today and say Joe Biden had been elected president with Donald Trump um, having lost the state of Texas and having it been one of the most amazing routes in U.S. presidential history. I'd be more open to that possibility, but I think the fact is, uh, for good or ill, um, Trumpism is here to stay for a while. Now, the thing about Trumpism is it's not like the Reagan revolution. Um, it's an effect of cult of personality. It's, it's, it's a malleable sort of belief system. So I, I suspect the future of the GOP looks less like Donald Trump and more like Ron DeSantis. And I also suspect for a lot of those who would be, again, associated in any form with never Trumpism, are not going to be satisfied with that level of change. And that's understandable. Um, now, that being said, in terms of like long-term, you know, if you think about the history of, say, the conservative movement, um, I don't, I, it's an interesting thought experiment to think, what would it have been like to be someone who was an avowed conservative just after the uh, the route of Goldwater losing to LBJ in the 1964 election, which, if not the most, was one of the most lopsided defeats in American history. Um, that it was actually, a, it was an amazing accomplishment Goldwater could even make it that far. And I'm not necessarily trying to hold up Goldwater as the gold standard for all conservative thought. He certainly had his faults. But at that time, it represented the closest the nascent conservative movement of the modern era had ever ever gotten to any sort of political um, uh, power. It took 20 years, uh, not quite, but pretty much 20 years before that moment happened again. And Goldwater himself had given a speech about this was the time to go into the wilderness. And, and I know that that's an easier message maybe for younger conservatives, which tend to be my audience, that our day is not now. Um, and we might not, you ask the question how, which is equally important and one I'll give an even less satisfactory answer to. I don't know how necessarily. I know that um, I, I think part of the problem is when I say temporary expectations, what we naturally want to do is look for that Reagan-esque figure that's going to come in and, and, um, and turn things around. What is harder, but I think is unfortunately going to be more necessary is for us, instead of looking to Reagan, to look to the Yuval Levin model. Now, what we're actually looking at is a rebuilding of institutions that's going to take many, many years. Uh, that it's going, we're going to have to cultivate um, uh, affirmative institutions. We're going to have to cultivate character. We're going to have to make this nation susceptible again to the difficult uh, message of the patience and maturity necessary for a conservative movement to prevail. Well, and I think my take on it, and I've been more around the never trump movement um as i would agree with you there i think there there tends to be a lot more impatience um that this is this going to happen quickly mm -hmm. i don't think it will um i don't think that we got to this point quickly um it might seem quick but i think there were things happening before you know trump went down the golden escalator mm -hmm. um that we're setting these, this in motion and it's just not gonna happen quickly. Um, which then makes me think that, uh, you know, the other thing is, is that I agree, I don't think we're gonna go back to something that's Reagan-esque. Um, Ronald Reagan was 40 years ago. Um, yeah. I think I was 10 when he was elected. <laughs> so, which 
tells you my age. And so, you know, that that's several generations. And I mean, we now have maybe two generations that have no memory of him. So it means that we have to find new ways. And, and that also means some change um, that you're not gonna necessarily, the conservatism that worked in 1981 may not be the way it works in 2021. Um, so, it, you know, I think I would agree with you that it's going to take some time, um, which then leads me to this question. Is it going to be the change going to be brought about not by someone of my generation, which is mm. Generation X, but Millennials and Gen Z, um, because they seem to have much more understanding of of the current situation of who we are, that we're more diverse. Um, there are issues that you know need to be more focused on, like climate change or things to that extent that I think older generations haven't really given much thought. Are you, and just to clarify, are you, are you um, saying that Gen, Gen X is in that group? Uh, I, don't, I, I would say, I don't know. Gen X, we're kind of always the bridge generation. So there are some of us that I think would lean towards kind of that more forward thinking. And then there are some that are more backwards. So it's, it's always, I always kind of, with everything, I think my generation's always the bridge between kind of the old and the new. I gotcha. Yeah. And well, and, and you're absolutely right that some of this we are witnessing, you know, with the, with the deepest respect of the baby boomer generation, they got a lot of things wrong and they've continued to get a lot of things wrong. Um, and, I suppose we could probably sit at any moment in history and you're going to have young whippersnappers like you and I talking about the old farts and how they got everything wrong. Um, and so I'm trying to be uh, aware of that bias, say, on, on, on at least my part. Um, but you are correct in that younger generations in terms of, uh, I, I mean, I don't, I, there's actual evidence for this and there's certainly anecdotal evidence for, on my part about um, younger Americans, younger conservatives are way more open to uh, questions of diversity uh, um, to questions of environmental policy in a way that older generations are simply not. I think we've not yet effect, we've not yet seen what a millennial generation who has effectively been um, an effective message of free market enterprise for millennials say. I think for the most part, the millennial is very debt adverse, which is a good thing. Um, due to the uh, the 2008 market collapse and some of the things we had lived through, that's largely shaped our worldview. Unfortunately, what it has also done is, is we've seen a an unwillingness or inability of the right to explain how things like that can actually function in a free market, um, or how that was a uh, an aberration of a free market, and and not um, and it's it's left the door open for the Bernie Sanders of the world to kind of mm-hmm. explain. Your only models are sort of this, this rogue uh, elitist class that, has, that controls the purse strings uh, versus a collectivist society that hopefully we would presume would be more benevolent. Um, and, and so I, I, the reason I'm, I'm saying that is I think the older generation, for whatever reason, maybe it's just generational bias, has a tendency to write us off. They don't argue with us like adults. Um, they don't engage with us like adults sometimes. It's, it's uh, you know, I tell this story all the, well, I'll, I'll, I'll skip that. Um, I'm just going to get on my soapbox about, um, I think, and here I'm talking about 
in my experience within the Republican Party, there is definitely a desire to bring young people in. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm an, I'm pushing the old end of a young person. Uh, but I used to joke when I showed up to a Republican meeting, I could decrease the median age by 20 years. Um, <laughs> there is definitely a desire to bring young people in. There's definitely a desire in, in certain regards to bring in uh, other ethnicities. But I think there's also a disconnect as to how one does that. And, and what I have witnessed is when I show up to these meetings, there's gratitude I'm there. And so I don't discount that these are real desires, a real recognition that, hey, we as a party are going to need, and again, I'm speaking with my partisan hat here, the Republican Party is going to need to um, welcome in a new generation if it's going to survive. But that's about as far as it goes in terms of trying to actually listen to what exactly is it the younger generation sees different than we do, and do their values and our values still align in a way that we can live with? Um, you know, not to abandon, and I think that's kind of the, the concern is that in order to placate to say millennials, we're talking about a, adopting a socialist model, and I, I, I just don't think that's true. Um, and so once again, I'm, I'm concerned, Dennis. I've wondered so far. I filled your question. I've forgotten what it was. <laughs> Basically, it's kind of how, not even really how do we reach that generation, but what does millennials and Gen Z have to offer, and and yeah. And, and how will they, in some ways, change? Could they change the party? Because they will. That's that's what's going to happen. They, yeah, that's that's not a. Um, uh, there is no question. Uh, we will change the party just because we're going to be the only ones here eventually. Uh huh. Um, I am very hopeful that being debt averse and the experience of the two thousand and eight market collapse. Well, you know, individuals over time do tend to conservativeize, if that's even a word. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean for political means, sometimes just within their personalities and their lives. I am hoping that we will learn valuable lessons from that, um, that we will, that I don't know whose idea this was, but the fact that Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Elizabeth Warren, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton are all like, what, a couple of years apart from each other? It, and I, I'm not necessarily blaming that generation, but we have been stuck in a baby boomers world for probably a couple of decades past their prime. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, I'm not saying it's necessarily their fault on, on anything, but I'm hopeful uh, in spite of the fact that there seems to be uh, uh, millennials are more open to socialism, that what we are going to see on the right is a resurgence, the idea of limited government and particularly of, of reigning in spending and kind of this notion that, you know, the question of, well, who has to pay for all this? Turns out we are the ones who have to pay for all this. And so we are probably going to be less, uh, a little more spendthrift maybe, in the years to come. And, and unfortunately, um, and this is not a you know pleasant message, but I think we are going to be the generation that has to clean up after the party. Mm. Um, and, and that's not, um, you know, I had a recent guest on uh, Chuck Marone. He said there's value in that work. There's real honor in that work. Um, you can have a, a meaningful life of joy, but it is also going to be a, a difficult life. And, and I think that um, maybe the, the hope in millennial and Gen Z is a latent hope. It's one that we've not, because we're, we're in such a holding pattern uh, that we we just, it's not like we're trying to wrestle control from the baby boomers, but they've not relinquished it yet. So we've not yet seen what millennials are actually going to do. Well, and the other thing I always have to bring up is that, you know, they haven't relinquished control to millennials, but they haven't relinquished control to Generation X either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're in our 40s and 50s, so we're not getting any younger. Yeah, I, 
maybe you can speak to this for me, Dennis. I always assume that someone in Generation X feels like the middle child. Yes. Exactly. Half the time we even forget you guys exist. Well, I mean, everyone's seen that meme that I think was put out by CBS year a few years ago that was a Chiron that showed all these different generations. In some strange way, I, obviously women were not having babies between the mid-60s and mid-80s. <laughs> so, but everyone I know that was in my generation is like, yeah, that's par for the course. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're always kind of the middle middle child, and that's that's always where we are. Um, and I think, especially when it kind of comes to this, again, that's kind of where it's going to be because that gener the boomers just have really not let go yet, um, and haven't been willing to kind of go into the background. And I, and I do, um, I, I think to turn the question around on you, maybe somewhat, I also see the potential for generation X playing a leading role in, in our future. And I say that because I think the real value that your generation offers, other than obviously being our elders, and there's value in that, is that there is a sort of humility that's naturally brought about by you not being the center of the focus. Both the baby boomers and us millennials have unfortunately been cursed with such an over-recognition that I think has gone to our heads. And, and there can be good of that. You know, I think millennials naturally have a sort of, I'm going to change the world passion. But we lack that kind of humility that maybe a Gen X can, that, that's necessary for conservative uh, governance that maybe Generation X with a steadier hand and less of a it's all about me attitude um, can maybe enact a more positive change. I think so. I, I think, you know, our generation tends to be a, a bit more cynical. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but there is some, some use for that, that to know that not everything is going to work and maybe we have to figure out what does work and how can we have that how can we do things for the better? Um, and I think that that is something that Generation X can kind of bring to the table. No, oh, definitely. So one of the things that also, you know, last year with the presidential election, um, you know, we saw basically at least the first millennial running for president in, in Pete Buttigieg. Do you see that, do you think that there is someone and in and, and, and your discussions with fellow millennials, someone within the Republican Party on the horizon that could be that person? And can they navigate the current Trumpism of mm. today? Well, and, and, and there, there's maybe two different ways I could take the question. One is I would, um, I think we have a tendency to look at a Pete Buttigieg, not just him, but someone who is, say, a millennial and a rising star and say that they're somehow going to take the, uh, the millennial. So let me back up a step. When we're both talking earlier about this notion of succeeding generations taking over, um, that doesn't necessarily mean those individuals themselves become elected officials. Obviously, it can. Mm -hmm. But if we back up the clocks, you know, not that many years ago, on the right, and I say this all the time, the candidate that got the most attention among young Americans uh, – um, you might have to edit this part out because I'm completely blanking on names all of a sudden. Uh, Ron Paul, mm -hmm. an aging, wrinkly white man. Well, who got the most attention not that many years later on the Democratic side? Bernie Sanders, an aging, wrinkly white man, right? They're not young. They're not ethnically diverse. 
but their views are very outside the mainstream of what we've seen over the last many decades. And I'm not necessarily a supporter of either of their views. Uh, in, in fact, I, I dare say that I think we could see a thousand different variations of something outside the mainstream, some of which I very much could get behind, that I think would equally resonate well with millennials and younger Americans. One of which, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier, one of the things I would count as a positive in our generation is we have a, a deep um, cynicism towards being inauthentic, mm-hmm. um, that, that uh, we are less likely to be swayed by sort of the bumper sticker politics. Um, and we want something fresh. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean what we're going to be swayed by is healthy, uh, but it needs to be something other than the crap we've all been swimming in for the last 40 years. Um, now, in return to your question, a Pete Buttigieg, as far as are there younger Americans today, I mean, there, there might be the, the unfortunate aspect is, you know, if they take multiple forms, I think this is the problem. So we can think of the Alain Stefanics, which very much is in the mold of a Trumpism, uh, but not a like ultra conservatism, but more of a a cult of person. Uh, oh, I don't know what you'd even call that opportunistic. I don't. Know. I, I don't. I'm not trying to necessarily disparage her. Um, but then you have Adam Kinzinger, um, uh, who is not at all like that. Who steps outside of that mold. Um, you know, and I don't want to just list off a lot of names. But I guess what I'm saying is, I I think what you are going to see is multiple individuals who find ways to break outside of the natural left-right policy divides we've seen over the last four decades. Pete Buttigieg was not that individual. Um, He was young and he was bright and he was articulate. He did not have a lot of young Americans crazy about him. No, he didn't. And and so I I don't think the Pete Buttigieg is is what awaits us in the future, because I, I think that only works when you still have a lot of older Americans supporting these younger candidates. But what happens when those older Americans aren't with us anymore? I don't think it's the Pete Buttigieg that, that takes the reins of power. I think we're going to see, um, I think we're going to see more your, your Bernie Sanders, um, more your Ron Pauls, or more other varieties that kind of question the status quo. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think you know, you were talking about Adam Kinzinger. The other one that I tend to think about is actually from my home state in Michigan, uh, Peter Meyer, mm-hmm. um, who tends to be, that district in Michigan tends to go its own way in, in some ways. I mean, it's, it's conservative, but it is not in lockstep. And he tends to fit that district um, just as much as I think Justin Amash did um, as his predecessor. So just- That is a very interesting district. It is Grand Rapids. It's basically Grand Rapids and its environs, and it's it, it's a fascinating district um, because it's conservative, but it is not it is not what you would think as conservative. Um, right. No, I I don't have the advantage of living in a you know a state such as Michigan. I'm in red state Oklahoma. Our politics is pretty. Uh, primaries are exciting. The generals are very boring. I yeah. And unfortunately here, I live in Minneapolis these days, so <laughs> I don't have much of a say. So. Understand. So, yeah. So I think going back, I wanted to touch again the, the whole um, Never Trump movement. Do you see anything, how is it helpful to conservatism these days and how has it not been helpful? I, uh, it's unfortunate. I think never Trump has been more unhelpful than it's been helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, 
And there's a variety of reasons. I don't want to sound like I'm just anti-Never Trump. I don't call myself Never Trump. I did in the 2016 election. I take Jonah Goldberg's position on this, that when it comes to like a presidential race, it makes sense. Because at that time, it wasn't a movement. It simply meant, look, if Donald Trump is a Republican nominee, I'm not voting for the guy. And if that means I either don't vote in the election or I vote for Hillary Clinton or I vote for another third party candidate, I'm just all it said was I'm not voting for Donald Trump. What that meant once he became president, unfortunately, I think was kind of up for grabs. And, and I think it allowed for a possible, it allowed for a demagoguing, if you will, of the, of the term itself. It also created a scenario where, you know, I have, I have a good friend who's been on my podcast time or two, Justin Stapley. Uh, he attended the principal first um, event in Washington, D.C. that was intentionally meant to coincide with CPAC. And he told me, and I don't think I'm sharing anything he wouldn't share or has not shared publicly, but he was very um, disappointed in that it seemed like he was one of the very few individuals there that was consistently trying to say, what are we for? Mm-hmm. Almost everyone there was expressing, we just have to tear apart. Um, and, and there is, I think, a, a, I think there can be a reasonable debate, given where we are now, given the events of January 16th, to what extent is it necessary to wreck the Republican Party before any sort of rebuilding can take place? I'm, I'm okay with that argument. And, and I, I, my bias is I, I, I think, <laughs> I, I don't think we need it wrecked any further. Um, but I understand someone had taken that mindset. My concern with something like a never Trump movement is that it's almost wholly focused on resistance of the current moment instead of altering alternative paths. And unfortunately, what that ends up doing is, as I, I think you uh, had observed some of the questions you had forwarded to me, is it, it creates us, the Lincoln Project, and when it comes to the, what is the Republican for Accountability Project, all of uh, the bulwark, maybe to a lesser degree, all of which I can agree with their underlying thesis or their underlying ethos as to why they're there, but they're largely promulgated by those who are moderate or center left, uh, or, or more so than you would expect with any sort of organization or, or um, affiliation that, that says basically advertises itself to be center right. Um, I think, and I'm not trying to oversimplify this, because again, there are incredible, wonderful people that work for the bulwark. But my preference is that we see more of a uh, the dispatch, uh, Jonah Goldberg, David French model. I don't always agree with them. I'm not saying they get everything right. But the difference in those two mindsets, as I see it, is one is resistance-oriented. The other is basically saying, we want to build an institution that we recognize um, is very rare these days. And we're not focused on what we're against. We're focused on what we're for. Doesn't mean they're not Trump skeptical or Trump critical. They're definitely critical. The direction the Republican Party is gone. But it, it affords them the ability to kind of have that more forward-thinking mindset of how do we build a future. Yeah, I, it's funny. When um, the bulwark first came out, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was Me too. really good. And, and I think that there are still good things. I, I don't think it's all bad or anything. But I think it's in some ways there are, well, there are many problems, but there it is very much resistance oriented. Um, it's not really thinking about what we are for and even how can we change or to be, you know, or to be even reflective of what happened that we were in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, with the dispatch, I, again, don't agree with them always. Um, I'm probably more moderate than they are, but they are more interested in saying, this is who we are. This is where we're, we want to, to head. 
And this is what we're for. Um, there, there seems to be something more constructive in, in that setting, which is very different from, from the bulwark, which sometimes seems more destructive. And I don't want to say that in a bad way. You know, sometimes there is a, a need to, to deconstruct things, but you also have to put things back together. And that's kind of the thing that I always feel is the tension that I feel a lot is that there's a lot of, this is all bad. Yeah. Okay. But then tell me what's good. Um, what, what can be salvaged? Cause something has to be salvaged because the system that we're currently in is a two party system. And I don't see a third party coming anytime soon. So we're stuck with these two parties. How do we change things? And we can't put all of our eggs in the basket of the Democratic Party, because that I don't think is healthy for democracy. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's also been to change. And, and you define yourself as more moderate. It's, it's also been disconcerting to me to see that in this era where the Republican Party is radicalized in a lot of ways, the Democratic Party is not modernized or, or moderated. No, it hasn't. Uh, yeah, I don't, you know, I, and, you know, my husband is, as a Democrat, I am around a lots of Democrats. As I said, I live in Minneapolis. There are about nine to one. <laughs> and um, so it's not that I have anything against Democrats, but I don't think that they have, I don't feel comfortable in that party either or, or now. Um, I think that there are some things where they've moved too far to the left and um, not as much, you know, trusting or seeing where there is good in the free market. You know, there are things that are not great with the free market, but I think that there are things that are good. And sometimes we want to just kind of throw all of that out. Um, and so I agree. I don't think that they have moderate, moderated as much as we want to think. And in some ways, I don't know if they have modernized either. Mm. Um, you know, we hear a lot about the, the Green New Deal, and that's the interesting thing. I think this is where something where I will share something from General Goldberg. It's that he talks a lot about how the Democrats, in a lot of ways, are always focused on bringing back the New Deal or the Great Society. And it's that, you know, the New Deal was almost a century ago. Um, what is it now? What, what type of way do you want to govern now? Mm -hmm. Because I feel sometimes with the Democrats, they want to govern like it's 1967, mm -hmm. not like it's 2021. No, that's, that's true. And, and it's, <clears throat> and, and there's kind of two things going on here. One is, one is a policy debate. I am not a Democrat and I don't support democratic policies because I think they're bad for the United States. But there are plenty of Democrats that, that I think are good, decent Americans that I'm proud to have, you know, proud to call American right along with myself. And, and this is, I think, a little hard to see because of the complete um, crap show that is the Republican Party today. But the Democratic Party is also very um, not operating in good faith. And, and here I'm not necessarily talking about the rank and file. But I think, you know, case in point, in the 2000, in, in, uh, on January 6th in the incursion, obviously that was a, a horrible, despicable display um, by supporters of Donald Trump. And so let me be super clear here that I am not 
equating what I'm about to say next from the Democratic Party to, to anything on par with that. I do not mean that. But Nancy Pelosi, who I think is a very capable political operative, chose instead of doing the right thing to play politics and orchestrated an impeachment movement in such a way that made it challenging for Republicans who might have otherwise been sympathetic Mm -hmm. uh, to jump on board. Now, is it true that had she done everything as honorable as possible, Donald Trump would have been removed from office? Probably not. But it, it, I think we live in this moment where it can be, if you are of the left, if you are a Democrat, I think you can kind of be blinded to looking to the right as a bunch of uh, uh, knuckle-dragging racists and thank God I'm in this party, you know, that's not like that. It could happen to the Democratic Party. There could be a cult of personality there that is it's not going to look like Donald Trump, but it could be an equivalent level of narcissism mm-hmm. and destructive to a free society. And, and I think I, I think there's a real danger if we don't have this but for the grace of God, there go I attitude um, that in reality, this is a national problem, not beholden to any one party. It's just I am a Republican and I sadly will admit it has uh, metastasized worse in my party. But it can happen to the Democrats also. It's not as if that it, it's not as if I just disagree on policy. I also disagree on their leadership their integrity, uh, their honesty. We have a, a dearth of leaders in this country right now in both parties. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you with um, Nancy Pelosi. I think that she is actually a very capable leader. The problem is that I, I think, especially in her role as speaker, she hasn't been a capable leader for the nation. Yeah, Um at the time of the moment, and, and she did the same thing with the prior impeachment when she could have brought people together from both parties because there were people from both parties that had concerns. Um, she chose to make this a partisan affair, which in some ways I think played into Donald Trump's hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think that too often that is the case, that there is this sense that the other party is just filled with races, so why even work with them? Um, which in essence then weakens your hand um, in having to deal with some of the issues that are that, that we together need to face. Yeah, and some of it, and, and I, I understand that. I, I certainly understand the, the desire to not work with the other party, whatever party you're with. Uh, neither of them seem to be offering the olive leaf. Um, but if we could at least begin from the base of maybe somebody needs to be interested in the best interest of the country. country rather than my party and not focus on whether or not I'm working with the other party. I think that's what we're missing is, is there doesn't seem to be an interest in the health of the country right now. In essence, there are no statesmen or oh, yeah. states people. Yeah. There, there are no states people <laughs> or very few, very few. They seem to be marginalized. Not, not in the, let me put it this way. It, over the last four years, you can definitely pick out, there are Republicans, Democrats that I think we can say we are proud to serve in those offices. That being said, the leadership of both of these parties, um, I, I am I, I do not have kind things to say about. Hmm. Is it part of also that we, we we talked earlier about the role of institutions and that both the Republican and Democratic parties in many ways have their institutional power has lessened over and that's caused dysfunction 
And obviously, we see that dysfunction far more in the in the GOP, right? But it but it's present in both parties. No, I, th- I think that's true. And, and and again, I'm just I'm just quoting my betters, but that's definitely a Jonah Goldberg idea that um, that the parties it's <laughs> we're actually suffering from the parties being too weak. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't know how much of the problems we're seeing go away if the parties were stronger. I think they would be better. I often wonder, could we save Western civilization if we just got C-SPAN cameras out of Congress? You know, it was kind of tongue-in-cheek. But, but I, I think there are things we could be doing at the margins that would most definitely improve the situation. Um, where I, I don't want to say disagree with Jonah Goldberg, but where I don't know that he's necessarily always focused correctly is I don't know that that's, I don't know to what degree that actually explains the moments we're in. Hmm. So that you don't think that it's just institutional. It could be also be some other issues that are happening. It, it could be. And, and I say that saying I don't necessarily have a list of here are the five other things or things to back them up. But I, I think what Goldberg is doing, and rightly so, is he's pointed out, look, a lot of the problems we're experiencing are because the, problem, the, the parties are too weak to filter out, say. The Democratic Party has, has shown itself to be more functional. You know, you mentioned earlier um, the idea that a third party is not really, doesn't seem to be a viable option. The irony is... Um, we have had two near or, or actual successful third parties in the last four years. One was Bernie Sanders, the other was Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, they just operate within the given parties we have. But the idea of the Republican Party today is similar to what it was 20 years ago is, <laughs> it, it is a little far afield. Um, the Democratic Party has managed, to their great credit, to maintain a little bit more of a, um, uh, of a party apparatus, if you will, of, of a sort of towing the party line. And that's not necessarily always good or bad. You can have a, a say, third-party candidate that maybe you and I could collectively agree, this person would actually be a better candidate. And instead, it's the smoke-filled rooms where these decisions are made that push them out and prevent them from having any clout because it's really the establishment that's comfortable in their power positions that don't want change. So I'm not saying this is a panacea. Um, I think there was a reason that the parties became, and I don't mean this in a, in a partisanship, more small-D democratic. Because um, there's a lot of shady business going on within those those parties and, and those background deals. But I do think unquestionably where Joan Goldberg is right, we've gone way too far in the small D Democratic um, that everyone has a, a chance and a voice. And honestly, it's kind of peculiar to me. It was the Republican Party that fell apart first because the Democratic Party seems to have the much more everybody's voice counts. You don't even have to be a registered Democrat in a lot of cases to participate in, in the process. Hmm. Well, I want to kind of wrap this up by asking a question about, on a more personal matter, is how did you end up as a conservative and why do you remain a conservative, even in the face of all the challenges that the movement is facing today? What keeps you um, as a conservative? Yeah, and, and certainly, I, as I mentioned earlier, I draw a distinction, I guess, from uh, conservatism and conservatism, Inc., mm-hmm. if you will, the latter of which I, I don't feel any kinship or, or affiliation with whatsoever. Um, I, I, have, I have expressed before, if, you'll, um, if you will forgive me, uh, began my conservatism by, uh, I grew up in a family, it was a fairly um, conservative, not in a political sense, conservative religious tradition. And we didn't have a TV. We, I think I was in my teen years before I ever went to a movie theater. 
Mm. Uh, we saw movies. We just didn't really grow up on them. But I, I listened to radio. Maybe that's why I like podcasting so much. Audio was my escape. And I love listening to Rush Limbaugh. Mm. And that was really what I think first shaped my um, interests, say, in, in political discourse and political thought. Um, a lot of my peers were interested in sports. I was interested in politics. Uh, now, in retrospect, I was also um, naive. Uh, and, and I was getting my information from very, very limited sources. And it, I, I knew how to get information that sort of rung those little bells in my head. Like, okay, here's what I agree with. So I'm, I'm safe here. And it, it really wasn't until I got off to college that I started to notice things. Like I was part of, you had mentioned already, college Republicans. I went to College of the Ozarks. Uh, I was the president of the College of Republicans. But prior to that, when I served in one of the leadership roles, there was an individual there who was the uh, prior president um, who I remember distinctly uh, because I think he was a proto-Trumpist uh, before we even had words for, for Trumpism. Um, College of the Ozarks, which was right outside of Branson, Missouri, is one of the most conservative areas and one of the most conservative colleges in the United States. And, uh, and, and the president um, uh, of the College of Republicans felt it was his duty to, I, I, th I think we did a straw poll once among the student body and the faculty, uh, and this will show how old I am, I guess, uh, George W. Bush running against John Kerry. And I want to say it was like 80 or 90% in favor of George W. Bush. But the president of the College of Republicans thought it was his God-given role on earth to chase away whatever vestige of liberalism there remained at College of the Ozarks. And, and I just remember feeling so out of step with his thinking. Um, I was like, I don't understand. Why are we doing this? Like, if anything, we need to be making inroads with these individuals. Um, we need to be um, understand what, tr trying to uh, form some sort of conversation so that maybe we could um, benefit from each other. You know, if we really think we're right, why, what are we so afraid of? And I, I kind of remember that as the first chink in the armor, if you will, of kind of this recognition that there were um, at least two different mindsets within the broader conservative movement. Uh, and, and that I began to see this uh, more and more, but I really didn't think that much about it until 2016. Um, and, and I still think that the MAGAism we've witnessed was then and probably still is in a lot of ways a minority within the larger right, even though it's possibly the largest minority. Um, but I think that was the moment where I realized what it means for me to be a conservative is obviously different than what it means for others. I need to figure out what that means. And that was the point at which I'm ashamed to say, you know, at this point, I'm an adult post-college. I started reading Edmund Burke and Russell Kirk. And I had already been familiar with the National Review and very much enjoyed the magazine, but tried to read more about Frank Meyer and William F. Buckley and, um, and then some more contemporary thinkers. I know he passed uh, recently, but uh, Thomas Sowell, uh, Milton Friedman, Roger Scruton. Um, and I say this over and over, I felt cheated. I was like, I've been in this movement. I've been in this party my entire life. And I have either never heard of these people or, or was never given any of this stuff to read. I cannot believe the depth and the wisdom and the tradition that is here uh, that's been swimming all around me. I just never knew it. And I think that um, is what has kept me in the conservative movement. I started that way. But I feel I'm more conservative today than what I was because of the shock to the system, if you will, has made me try to re-examine what do I actually believe. And when I did that, I discovered um, that, that there is a rich history here um, that I can be very proud of. 
And how do you think you're kind of maybe spreading the good news to others? Um, I'm hoping the mere introduction of introducing to some of these ideas and concepts, and honestly, what some of the forefathers and four uh, mothers of conservatism, um, unfortunately, political intellectual traditions tend to be a male game. So it's, it's, I, I don't mean to be unfair to the ladies, it's just they're not as well represented sometimes. Um, what they really suffered and the challenges they faced and what they wrestled with. Um, I'm hoping just introducing them to that is enough to at least wet the, wet the appetite. Um, and I have, um, I'm not going to save the world. I'm under no delusions about that, but I, I consider it a badge of honor that in spite of the fact I'm doing a political podcast in nature, um, I will on occasion get uh, uh, tweets, uh, you know, IM'd or emails or uh, Facebook messages from an individual talking about, they've just never heard this stuff before. Some of them are actually on the left. Some of them are in disagreement with me about just about anything. But man, I, I have never encountered a conservative that talks like this. And it's obviously not just me, but trying to introduce individuals to this, I'm hoping that I'm not alone. That most individuals, when they, if they're really looking for it, if they want an authentic um, message of hope, uh, an authentic message of um, a life-affirming philosophy, and they encounter that, I think they're naturally going to gravitate toward it. Yeah, I, I um, recently I've been still finishing it, um, and I can never, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong because I'm bad with how the German um, kind of spells things, but I think it's William, or actually in this case, Wilhelm Zitbrocki, the economist that I've got uh, his book hanging. I don't know how to pronounce it either. Yeah, I, I have <laughs> I'm no red-blooded American. I can't pronounce French or German. Or <laughs> <laughs> it's the one, I think it's the humane economy. And I think he mm-hmm. was supposedly instrumental in helping West Germany kind of the economy kind of get restructure it yes. um, after World War II. So I see he seems to be pretty fascinating. Um, the other one, because looking at your website was that um, I've read and, and I think um, I have an interest in is um, Abraham Kuyper. Um, mm. the, he's Dutch theologian, politician. Um, he's kind of responsible for what would be considered the reformed stream of um, Christian democracy. Um, if you're familiar with that movement. Um, I, I just think he's a good he was a good thinker um, on a lot of different levels. Um, I'm actually not. I had to check into that. I'm not familiar with that thinker. Yeah, if I, um, yeah, I definitely would would recommend him. Um, like I said, he's just a fascinating person. Um, he was um, in the I think turn of the last century was even the prime minister of the Netherlands for a certain amount of time, um, and so he's kind of. A lot of, of conservatives have um, looked to him in kind of a, a lot of different questions on on when it, dealing with poverty or um, and and social justice and things to that extent, but from a conservative standpoint. Hmm. I'll have to check into that. Yeah. Very formative. I'm I'm still kind of behind on reading some of the, the greats, so. Um, but I think it's important to to read some of those and um, learn them. And I think it's important just because these days we what we see 
as we, what we see is the conservatism that is kind of how it's performed and how it's performed is not really necessarily what it is. Um, it's kind of a weird distortion of, I think it is. is the original. It, it's, it's, it's a cheap knockoff of the original. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, thank you, Josh, for this um, great conversation. Um, and hopefully this will be something that um, people who are listening, if they've not really learned a lot about conservatism, can at least get a different viewpoint than what's in the news or um, kind of on the, basically in our social media feeds. Absolutely. Dennis, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. for taking the time to talk with me. And I really hope that we can chat again. It was a very fun conversation and would love to do it again. And I also urge you to listen to his podcast, Saving Elephants. And trust me, you don't have to be a millennial to enjoy the podcast. You can check out episodes by going to the to Saving Elephants website at www.savingelephantsblog, all one word, dot com. So what do you think? Can conservatism and the Republican Party be salvaged? Let me know what you're thinking by leaving a comment at our Facebook page or on Twitter. And our Twitter handle is at Enroute Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out the website at enroutepodcast.org. While you're there, you can listen to past episodes, check out the newsletter, Letters of Transit, or make a donation. And also, I do want you to be on the lookout and and check the website regularly, because I'm going to be trying to add some additional material, um, especially on our blog. So check everything out at enroutepodcast.org. Well, that's it for this episode of Enroute a podcast on the journey of life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care, Godspeed, and see you again. (laughs) 